everybody. Welcome to the New Market Alliance Church Podcast. For more information on the vision, programs, and news of our church, be sure to check us out at www.newmarketalliance.ca. We'd like to encourage you as well that no podcast, no matter how good, can substitute for the experience of joining together in person at a worship celebration. That's where God really meets people, often through the love and ministry of others. At NAC, we meet every Sunday at 10 a.m. Now let's join this week's teaching. Good morning, you beautiful, weird, wonderful people. How are you? My name is Jonathan, and uh, glad that you're here this morning. Um, this, was, this was young Jacob Voth on drums. Yeah. Good job, buddy. Good job. And uh, is that Pastor Sarah Cloak I see at the back? I think it is. Welcome, all the way from Saskatchewan. Who's teaching the kids this morning? Ah, good. Let them run free. Free Free-range pastoring. Um, So glad that you're here this morning. There's a lot of ways that we could uh, study history, categorize history. Um, We could study it through the lens of sort of important people and events. We could um, look at the significant transitions, you know, the age of... Uh, industry, the, the Renaissance, the Industrial Age. Um, Christians will sometimes break down history into um, covenants or dispensations, which are you know, periods, eras, uh, promises that God has made. I want to propose something to you very different. What if we were to look at the history of humanity through the lens of, of meals, times where We eat with God or without God. And so if I could just take a little walk from Genesis to Revelation and look at five distinct meals in human history that changed everything. The first meal is in Genesis. And we read that God made the earth and he gave it to us as a gift to enjoy and to steward. And then God told us that we were free to enjoy everything except except not to partake of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And what happened? Our first parents, Adam and Eve, disobeyed. Original sin is what the theologians call it. They ate a meal without God in disobedience. And so sin comes into human existence, and we're separated from God, and we're separated from one another, and there's a curse, and everything's a mess. And you know what God could have said is, well, you know, you reap what you sow, you made a mess, I'm done with y'all. Instead, God in his loving kindness says, I'm going to send someone, and he's going to straighten things out, and he's going to reconcile our relationship. And so then the story continues to the next book in Exodus, where God raises up his own people, and, and there's a few million of them, and a godless king, a pharaoh, comes into power in Egypt, and he hates these people. He hates them because they worship God, and they don't worship him, and he's threatened because they're, they're growing in number, and so he enslaves them, and he's abusive towards them. And so God raises up a man among his people. His name was Moses, good, and he tells them, I want you to go speak to Pharaoh for me and tell him that these are my people, they're not your people, and, and if, if you don't let my people go, I'm going to give you a UFC smackdown to end all UFC smackdowns, my paraphrase. And Pharaoh won't relent. 
So God sends a series of plagues and judgments, and, uh, and Pharaoh actually gets more hard-hearted, and eventually God comes and says, here's the last judgment. Uh, if you don't repent, if you don't let my people go, I'm going to send death throughout your nation. And every firstborn male, with one exception, those households who, in faith, get a lamb without blemish and sacrifice it and take that blood and cover their doorposts of their homes, those families will be spared. Death will literally pass over them. And this is the second meal, the Passover meal, which actually foreshadows Jesus, who is the Lamb of God, whose blood was shed to take away our sins so that the wrath of God would pass over us. So God says, I want all of my people who trust in me or who are waiting for a Savior to start having a Passover meal every year to remember how I delivered you from Egypt. And, and it's actually foreshadowing the final deliverer who's coming. 1 Corinthians 5.8 says that Jesus Christ, our Passover lamb, has been slain. And so Jews still celebrate it today, which, which is in some ways sad in that it's all about Jesus, and they don't know it's about Jesus. So that's the second meal. It just gives me an opportunity to give another little plug for this April 15th Seder meal, where our friends at Jews for Jesus will take us through the symbolism of the Seder meal. We're also going to have a great meal together, like Jewish-inspired, real like matzo ball soup, the whole the whole bit, and, uh, and it's going to be just a memorable uh, presentation of all the symbolism and, and uh, uh, imagery that goes into this Passover meal and how it applies to us today living in light of New Testament, of New Covenant, of Jesus. So then Jesus, who is God, he comes into human history, and it comes to that time of year, like every year, he had celebrated for the last 33 years where he celebrates Passover. And so Jesus gets his disciples together on the eve of his crucifixion. We know it now as the Last Supper. That's right. You may have seen the painting. Um, Luke 22 records that Jesus was going through a typical Passover ritual as prescribed in, in Exodus 12. And then he deviated from thousands of years of history and uh, of ritual. And he said something that had never been said before. He took the bread and he said, this bread is my body, broken for you. And this wine is my blood, which is going to be shed for you. My body and blood is going to be given for your sins so that you can enter into this new covenant that Jeremiah had prophesied, the covenant of, of grace with God. And so in that moment, Jesus changed millennia of tradition. Jesus said, all of those Passover meals that we've been eating for all these years are actually about me. I'm here now. It's, it's fulfilled. I'm going to get things taken care of. Sins will be forgiven. People will be reconciled with God. And it'll happen through my blood through my body being broken for you as a substitute in your place. And so as you know, his body was broken. His blood was shed 
for our sins. And three days later, he rose from the dead. He appeared for 40 days to make sure that everyone knew, could see him, see that he was alive, that he had conquered Satan, conquered sin and death. And then he ascended into heaven. And the early church immediately began gathering together, having meals, just like Jesus did at the Last Supper. And so that's the fourth meal in human history, the Lord's table or the Lord's Supper or communion or Eucharist. The, the reason the early Christians started getting together and doing this meal is that at the Last Supper, Jesus said, keep doing this in remembrance of me. That is a ridiculously long intro, but it gets us up to speed on this early, immature church in Corinth that Pastor Paul is writing a letter to, and wherein we have kind of the first snapshots of what an early communion would have looked like. So let's pick it up in chapter 10, verse 16, if you have your Bible, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 16, just out of curiosity, did anybody read anything from 1 Corinthians this Good, Steve. Good. I was looking for you especially. Good. On over this side. You know, huh? Good, good. All right. Leslie, excellent. It says here, verse 16, Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? So when we go to communion, there are two elements. There's uh, the cup. Um, but when you look at the cup, when you drink of the cup, what are you supposed to remember? The blood of Jesus, that's right. And so communion is about Jesus. Everything in the Bible is ultimately about Jesus, and, and particularly in communion. And when we look at the bread, what are we really supposed to remember? His body uh, broken for us. And, and Jesus himself said, I am the bread of life. Jesus was born in Bethlehem, Bethlehem, where house of bread is what it literally means. So... Um, he, the bread of life, is, is, is broken for us. And Paul goes on to say in verse 17, because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we all share the one loaf. So this was a church of maybe 40, 50 people, and they met in a house, likely, and they get a loaf of bread, and everybody takes a chunk, and he's using this analogy saying, you know, just as all of you all took a piece of this same loaf, we're the same family aren't we? We're, we're in this together. So what he's arguing for in communion is that it's supposed to be a demonstration of our unity. And, you know, notice he keeps coming back to this idea throughout the letter. As we partake in communion, those of us who are Christians are showing that we're all in this together, that we worship Jesus together, that we acknowledge that we're sinners together, that we're all going to heaven together, that one day we're going to rise from death like Jesus, equal before God. We're equally sinful, but we're equally loved together, not divided. Verse 18, consider the people of Israel. This is the church in the Old Testament. Do not those who eat the sacrifices participate in the altar? Do I mean then that food sacrificed to an idol is anything or that an idol is anything? Like in their day, there were religions just like there are today, Buddhism, Hinduism, certain religions that will have these little shrines, these little 
places for small g gods, and they'll display them in their restaurants or in their homes. Um, there'll be these regional deities, okay, these, these demon gods that oversee jurisdictions, trades, geography, and people will put money and food in there. It's like, this is from Cambodia where I uh, visited, and you see these little, they're called spirit houses. They're everywhere. And in a nation where people are finding it hard to get meals every day, people are leaving full meals at these little spirit houses and, and money where they don't have money really, but they are living in fear of these demon gods. And so Paul says, like, you guys know, right, if you carve a chunk of wood and you carve it into something, you know that's not God, right? The idol really isn't anything other than just a a piece of wood. But there's something for us to consider here. Verse 20, he says, no, but the sacrifices of pagans are offered to demons not to God, and I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons, too. You cannot be uh, a part of both the Lord's table and the table of demons. Are, Are we trying to arouse the Lord's jealousy? Are we stronger than he? I think what he's saying is that there are other religions, um, from, from Buddhism, Islam, Mormons, Jehovah's Witness, those who are into witchcraft, um, it's false religion. The worship of anything other than Jesus is demonically inspired. That's a harsh way of putting it, but it's not just plurality. It's not just diversity. It's not just you know a different perspective. It's literally anti-Christ. And so let me just come right out and say it. We believe in Satan. We believe in demons. We believe that Demons would love to have people worship anything and everything and anyone other than Jesus. And so if you're a Christian, you're saying, look, my God is Jesus. I worship Jesus. I serve Jesus. I trust in Jesus. I want to be like Jesus when I die. I'm going to rise and I'm going to live forever with Jesus. I'm, I'm a Jesus freak. I'm a Jesus geek. That's my team, right? I roll with Jesus. But Paul's saying, Look, you can't be a Christian who plants one foot in the church, you know, taking communion, publicly identifying yourself with Jesus, and have another foot in another team. So so people in this church were trying to be hyphenated Christians. Uh, People still try to do that, don't they? I'm a a Buddhist Christian. Mm, Nope. Uh, I'm a Mormon Christian. Uh Uh-uh. Uh, I'm a new age Christian. Nope. Uh, No hyphenated Christians. Paul, there's no crying in baseball, right? And there's no hyphenated Christians. Uh, You're either about Jesus or you're not. And when you turn to Jesus, you're literally turning your back on your prior allegiances and alliances. And it it would be the same today as I were to say, I'm a Christian witch, I, you know, I go to church on Sunday and coven on Wednesday. Mm-mm. Nope. No, you don't. You got to pick a team. And so what he says is that demons would love for you to put your trust in Jesus plus something else. Hedge your bets, which really isn't trusting at all. 
So the Bible says that kind of person is, is double-minded and unstable. And, and please hear me. We don't turn our back on people. We turn our back on alliances and allegiances and participation in things that are ultimately demonically inspired and contrary to Jesus. We have this great ministry in our church, Freedom Ministry, that has you know kind of been on hold for a little bit. But it's an opportunity for those who have, who have had alliances, allegiances with things that are not of God to just separate themselves once and for all. And so we'll talk more about that in the weeks to come. But look, you should have friends who are Buddhists and Muslim and JW, and you should have friends who are atheists, and you should love them, and you should bring the love of Jesus to them, but you shouldn't participate in what they're doing, you know? You should not see a psychic. You should not mess with a Ouija board. You shouldn't be praying to Allah. Uh, you shouldn't be rubbing crystal, crystals and talking about astral projection with the New Agers. You should be saying, I'm team Jesus. I love you, but I'm not going to do that stuff. I'm not team Mason. I'm not team astrology. I'm not team strip club. I'm team Jesus. I roll with him. And Paul then jumps forward and he, and he sort of, you know, picks up communion again in chapter 11. Remember, chapters are sort of an arbitrary thing that somebody, you know, in the, in the Middle Ages sort of arbitrarily made. So he picks it up again in chapter 17 of verse 11. Sorry, chapter 11, verse 17 says, In the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. That's a, that's a bummer to get in a letter. The church is like, hey, Paul sent us a letter. Cool, let's read it out loud together. Yay! It says, dear church, you suck. Oh, okay. He says, in the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you. And to some extent, I believe it. No doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. Now, as a church at NAC, we want to embrace diversity, a diversity of people in this room right now, young, old, white, black, poor, rich, Philippine, Irish, Chinese, French, conservative, liberal, uh, blue-collar, white-collar, no-collar, <laughs> clerical-collar, right, Mikey? Um, Marvel people, DC people, <laughs> people who eat meat, people who don't, animal lovers, people who hunt animals, uh, <laughs> indie rock listeners, hip-hop listeners, um, people who are listening to country and need to repent of it. And, <laughs> Look, we all have these different people, and you know what? The diversity is awesome. The diversity is a picture of heaven, a, a picture of how God loves all of us. And, and this big, weird family with God as our good, good father. So diversity is good, but division isn't. And so when we take our diversity and we elevate it to division, um, that's where he's saying, like, 
if you have a church going, well, I'm single, I only hang out with single people. I'm married, I only hang out with married people. You know, I'm black, I only hang out with black people. I'm white, I only hang out with white people. I'm young, I'm, I'm educated, I'm successful, I'm funny, I'm hip, I'm cute, whatever. We try to distinguish ourselves from other people and in doing so, imply I'm better than you. And, and we can't have unity that way. We can't have love that way. So what could rally all of these weird and wonderful people together, these sinful uh, people? What, what could rally us? Is it politics? Ha <laughs> ha, no, that ain't, that ain't bringing nobody together. Do we rally around our preferences? Mm, I thank you so much for doing that survey, Monkey. Many of you have responded. It is interesting, though, how, um, you know, we have different preferences. Um, some of you say, you know, what's the worst part about a NAC service? You say, it's that five-minute break. I have to talk to people. And, and uh, they asked me questions, and could we just not do that? And then somebody was like, what's the best part of NAC? That five-minute break. Could, could we make it 20 minutes, please? Could we just have a break as our service? And uh, so we're different, and we're not going to rally around preferences. The one thing that is actually going to bring people together is Jesus. If Jesus is at the center, if Jesus is high and lifted up, he draws us to himself. We look at his holiness. We look to his perfection, and it, and it humbles us. We, we're not looking at each other. Uh, we're not saying, I'm better than you. We, we're saying, man, um, we're all a dang mess, and none of us are like Jesus, and we all need him. And as a byproduct, we actually get community. Hey, I'm getting close to Jesus, and you're getting close to Jesus, and hey, now we're getting close to each other. And so Paul says to the Corinthian church, you guys have absolutely altogether missed it because when the church comes together, you're not thinking about Jesus. When you're taking communion, you're thinking about yourselves and how cooler you are than everybody in the room or smarter or prettier or more mature. He says, verse 20, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat. It looked like the Lord's Supper. There's a pastor there and there's bread and wine and the band singing, lead me to the cross. I mean, so why is that not the Lord's Supper? Because communion is not just something we do with our hands and our mouths. It's something we do in the heart. It is a outward act, but symbolic of an inward devotion. So when you take communion, you say, because Jesus died for me, I'm gonna live for him. And if you take that bread and eat it and your heart is hard, it's what Jesus called the vain traditions of men. It's, it's hollow. It's a routine. And some of you grew up in homes where your parents were Christians. You went to church twice on Sunday, literally. That's me, yeah, anyone, no? Yeah. And you've taken communion a million times and it's gone from a life-giving symbolism to a bit of a religious routine. So when you partake, are you thinking of Jesus? Are you confessing your sin? Are you standing up to publicly identify yourself with him? Or is it just, well, this is what Christians do. This is the bread part of the show. 
Um, he goes on to say, for when you are eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. As a result, one person remains hungry and another gets drunk. Wow, what a mockery. People turned communion into a happy hour. You got people getting DUIs coming out of the church. Camel DUIs, I guess. And he says, don't you have homes to eat or drink in? Or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this matter. So here's the way it would go down in the early church. They'd meet in homes, and they would have a big meal, not just a little chunk of bread and a little you know, thimble of, of wine. They, they had a big party, and they sort of stole or, or bored from the culture of that day, which had huge fat parties. In fact, the Corinthian parties of that day were sort of raunchy Vegas bachelor-style parties, and they um, imported some of those elements to their communion meals so that the rich people would come first, get the best seats, have the best wine, have all the hot food, totally gluttonous, full, drunk, pass out on the couch, and then the poor people from the church would come and eat the leftovers. Seriously. Paul's like, what kind of Christian love is that? How is, how is it that rich people get preferential treatment and poor people are mistreated if we're all equal, if we're equally sinful and equally loved? Paul says, if you're a Christian, um, you're family. So, like, how much would it stink if you were in a small group and the leader was like, okay, next week we're going to have a big communion meal. We're, we're, we're going to have food and drink and we're going to get a DJ and it's going to be fun. And how many of you uh, make 80 grand or more a year? Okay, yeah, okay. And you guys can come at six. How many of you make less than 80 grand? Okay, good. Uh, you guys can come at eight with the college students, okay? Because college students never have any money. And, like, listen, there are no second-class citizens in the kingdom of God. There ought to be no second-class citizens in the church, particularly when you think of the fact that our Lord was a homeless guy. You know, they're trying to be rich and cool and yet they worship this homeless guy. They probably hadn't really thought that one through. So here's what Paul says in verse 23. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. He goes back to the third meal, the last supper, to articulate the directives for this fourth meal, communion. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So then, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, without remembering Jesus, without humbly reflecting on their own sin, will be guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. We'll be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. A man ought to examine himself before... So Paul says, we got, to, we got to examine ourselves. We've got to look at our hearts and our motives. And now, 
some traditions, smaller churches, they had this thing called fencing the table based on this, this verse where you come forward and the, and the elders won't serve you communion unless they know that you're walking with God in holiness. Now, the problem with that is sin is often in the mind and in the heart. It's not visible. You could be filled with lust and murder and rage and anger, and the church wouldn't know, your spouse wouldn't know, your best friend wouldn't know. Not to mention, um, like, I tend to find that people generally sin in private, right? Like, if you go to Upper Canada Mall right now in the food court, like, nobody's just sort of sitting there in the food court, uh, watching porn and cursing God and smoking crack and picking their nose, you know what I mean? It's, it's usually done in secret. But the point is, I can't judge you. Our elders can't judge you. Could you imagine? You're holy, you're not holy, you're holy, you're not holy. You got to examine yourself. God, you know my thoughts, you know my heart, you know my deeds, you know my mind, you know my sin. And so examine ourselves before we partake of communion. And it goes on in verse 29. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment on themselves. And and the point is not to say, I'm filled with rage and lust and brokenness, and therefore I can't take communion. That's exactly the time you should take communion. it's, It's for the one, though, who isn't, soberly examining themselves, who in pride is thinking, I've got it all together. That's who the warning is for. And so you say, well, what happens if I won't examine myself and take communion? Glad you asked. Uh, Verse 30, this is why many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. This is a tough verse something I'd like to kind of skip because it's confusing and it's maybe at times taken out of context. Clearly, not all sickness comes from sin, but apparently, according to inspired scripture, sometimes it does. Sometimes um, people are sick because of unrepentance. And it says, that's why a number of you have fallen asleep. What is that, fallen asleep? That's Christian euphemism for death. So I don't want to overemphasize this verse. My fear is that there will be those who take on some guilt and condemnation who shouldn't. It seems mean. It seems it's going to be misunderstood. But the point is, is that this is serious business, right? Um, The reason that we are called to repentance before we take of communion is because sin is serious, Christ's sacrifice was serious. I mean, in the book of Acts, two people ripped off God and lied to God, and they dropped dead uh, in church during the offering. I mean, can you imagine we're passing the plate, and the dude next to you dies? I'd be like throwing my credit cards in. You know, take my air miles and my shopper's optimum, well, you know, Canadian tire money, just take it. So we, we're to judge ourselves. We examine ourselves. We repent of our own sin, and we give it to Jesus who, who covers our sin. Verse 32, nevertheless, 
when we are judged in this way by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be finally condemned with the world. Here's what he says. Uh, God's the father. We're the kids. Uh, God disciplines his children because he loves them. See, I have, I have kids. I'm the father of three great girls, and I don't punish my children. I discipline them. Uh, punishment is to hurt them. Discipline is to help them. And so Vicky and I discipline in the hopes that they'll become self-disciplined and maybe ultimately that they become disciples. And so some of you are saying, I want to be Jesus' disciple, but do you want to be disciplined? No. Discipline is how you become a disciple. And it's the same root word you may have noticed. You become disciplined by God so that you will become self-disciplined which is the essence of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. And so if you're going through hard times right now, um, maybe God has you in a, a pruning season. It's not that he's punishing you. If you're a Christian, it could be that he is discipling you and disciplining you to deal with sin, to help you become more like Jesus. First meal eaten by Adam and Eve in defiance of God. Second meal, the Passover, eaten in faith of the coming Savior, the Lamb of God. Third meal, the Lord uh, fulfilling the Passover at the Last Supper, initiating communion, the fourth meal. In the early church, for thousands of years now, all Christians, uh, including us, we partake of this fourth meal, and it, it leads us to the fifth meal, and then we'll close, which is in the book of Revelation. It's the last book of the Bible. History begins with a meal eaten apart from God, and it ends with a meal eaten in the presence of God, in a restored garden, Jesus Christ. And the meal is called the wedding supper of the Lamb. You can find it in Revelation, Revelation chapter 19. And today, we're going to eat the fourth meal but we're anticipating this fifth meal where we'll all sit down with Jesus in this kingdom and we're gonna have a fat old feast. And now some of you have a totally whack view of heaven. You, you watch cartoons as a kid and you think heaven is like you're like a fat cherub in a diaper and you're sitting on a cloud playing a harp and you're bored forever. <laughs> That's hell. That's not heaven, okay? <laughs> Heaven in the Bible is almost always spoken of as a partay. And it's a partay with great food and great drink and, and laughter, including God, according to Zephaniah 3.17, coming out to sing a solo, singing over us. That's Jesus. Man, that's going to be a great day when there's good food and good wine and Jesus on the mic. That's a good day. Chapter 19 in Revelations, verse 6, it says, Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, that's us, like the roar of rushing waters, like the loud peals of thunder shouting, Hallelujah, for our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. No sin, no death, no curse, just joy. God's already wiped every tear from our eye. Now we just, we party forever without without the kind of emptiness that we associate with earthly parties. It says, for the wedding supper of the, who? The lamb. 
Boy, that goes all the way back to the Passover, doesn't it? Jesus Christ. Now, the analogy is given that Jesus is a groom, and the church is like what? Our, the bride. And it's, it's like a wedding. The wedding of the lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. That's the church. Fine linen, bright and clean, she was given to wear. Ladies, um, what color do uh, brides wear on their wedding day? White, white, Danita. Jesus Christ lovingly forgives us, washes us, purifies us in his righteousness so that we can wear white, not because, not because we're sinless and spotless and pure, but because Jesus Christ has made us that way through his grace. So all you Christian ladies, no matter what has gone on in your past, if you've given that past to Jesus, Wear white on your wedding day because that's the gospel. And you know what? The Bible says that the sun never sets in heaven. It's always summer. It's, it's sunny. There's wine. There's cool people. Kevin is introducing us to his friends. Jesus is on the mic. All the nations, all the races, all the tribes are together. It's the coolest multi-ethnic cookout you've ever been to. And we're all laughing and we're telling good stories. And see, I think that's what happens when the weather gets nice. People barbecue and they have people over. And deep down, they're longing for heaven. They don't know it. But they're longing for Jesus. I want to invite the band to come up. And so now on this, on this uh, day where we partake of the fourth meal, the wedding supper of the lamb is just in sight. And so I want to invite you to come and partake and turn from your old ways to examine your life. And uh, when you're ready, uh, there'll be no one here serving you. I would just like you to take time during these next two songs to reflect a bit, examine a bit, um, see if there be any wicked way in you, as the psalmist says. And then when you feel the time is right, you identify yourself with this Savior. You identify yourself with the saints and you partake and you remember. If if you want nothing to do with Jesus or his church, then this is probably not for you. But maybe you're visiting today and you'd say, I, I want to be part of that wedding supper of the Lamb. I, I want to identify with Jesus. I want to make him Lord of my life. I invite you to come. Wouldn't it be cool if you said, the day I became a Christian, I partook of this fourth meal and I did it in remembrance of him. So why don't you stand with me and, and when you feel so called or moved, um, come, come and partake. Maybe, by the way, maybe you don't want to stand. Maybe you just want to reflect in your seat for a while. I, maybe you want to stand in a corner. Maybe you want to kneel. Maybe you want to lie down. There, there's all kinds of postures of worship and of reflection, but do it soberly. Do it honestly. And then partake.